Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old fairy tales, myths, and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of old Ireland to the soul-centered myth-tellings of ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. I believe that it's time to reclaim those ways of being and seeing and bring them back out into the world where they belong. In this series of conversations centered around the publication of my book, Haggitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, I offer you reflections from women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through the dark forest of our forgetting. Haggitude is a radical rewriting of the future for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Haggitude, both the book and the membership program, at haggitude.org. I'm delighted to be joined today by Jodie Day, who is the founder of Gateway Women, a support and advocacy network for childless women. She is also the author of Living the Life Unexpected, How to Find Hope, Meaning and a Fulfilling Future Without Children. And Jodie was one of the women that I spoke to for Haggitude, the book, and it's lovely to have an extended conversation here with you on the podcast, Jody. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about your work or particularly about, um, about Gateway Women and how it relates to older women without children before we actually get into the, the kind of meat, if you like, of yes. what we're about? Well, Gateway Women, I mean, it's 11 years old now. And when I started writing that blog, which kind of turned into this global movement, there were no voices out there like mine, which was, I think, why it got such traction. And it was very much about mourning childlessness. But for many women, childlessness by circumstance. And then as the years went on and I, I knew more and more women from different situations and I met started meeting older childless women, you know, I also started to realise what lay in the future for me, which was also an old age without children and grandchildren. And... That seems to be the next part of the journey for many childless women and a really scary one because as well as the thought of, well, who's going to be there for me, there's also the social identity piece of not being a grandmother, which is surprisingly chunky to navigate. And for women who choose to be childless or who at least, it, you know, it might have happened as it kind of happened to me, I didn't choose to be childless, but it just never came about. And it was never a particularly profound focus for me. There were times mm. where I might have chosen that yeah. and things worked out and they didn't. Is, is it different, do you think, or, do, or does what you're talking about also relate to people who are childless by choice and nevertheless face some of the same challenges when they grow older in terms of who to be and how to be? Mm. I, I think as we get older, as women without children... Um, number one, I don't think that childless and child-free is a kind of binary. 
Uh, I think it's it's very much a spectrum and it's one we kind of move around at different points on our journey. But I think as we get, we become elder women together, I think we have more and more in common because we start to see that many of the challenges and advantages of being an older woman without children and without grandchildren are the same. So I think we can perhaps find more community as we age and maybe having healed some of our wounds, maybe opened our hearts again. Certainly for me, part of healing from my childless grief was to be able to open my heart to women who are mothers again, and also to understand more about the the, the slightly more clear-cut child-free sort of choice and to realise how much I had to learn from them. I do think perhaps one of the advantages in being child-free by choice, which may be that you've chosen not to have children from an early age, is that perhaps you have consciously created intergenerational connections and you may have more young people around you because if you are grieving your childlessness you may avoid the company of young people for a long time you may avoid your nephews and nieces whilst you're grieving and so that can mean you know if you don't sort of wake up until you're you know until your 50s that actually i i want and i need intergenerational connection around me it can be a bit more challenging so there are there are advantages and disadvantages and right along through that path. But I do think as we age, we have more in common and I want us to have more in common. Mothers, childless and child free. I'm not happy with the distinctions and the little funnels that society puts us in. I agree. And I think it can also be very complicated or perhaps more complicated than it might imagine mm. choosing to be child free. So, for example, I have no brothers and sisters. Mm. I was taken away from my family in the northeast of England at a very early age. And although I have cousins with children, we lost touch many, many moons ago. Yeah. Most of my friends, perhaps because it works out that way, because while we were in our 30s, perhaps even our 20s and certainly our 40s, there was very much a focus in their lives on children and family. So a lot of my older friends who had children, I faded out of their lives because I didn't share that focus. So what I have ended up at the age of 61 being is someone who actually does not have any children in their lives at all. And no one at all close to me to pass down anything to because my friends tend to be childless or their children are long gone and mm -hmm. my family isn't around me with children. So I wonder whether there is anything in your organization and your kind of thinking for people like me. Yes, and your situation is, is not uncommon. And I think with people having fewer and fewer children, this is going to be something that, you know, more and more people will be experiencing. I mean, the next part of my work um, with Gateway Women, it's going through a a bit of a a bit of an elderhood revolution in my work at the moment so that I'm free I'm actually sort of I've been handing over quite a lot of parts of gateway women I've been sort of handing them over to the next generation to lead um, in order to free up time for me to focus on a new project which I've tentatively called gateway elder women and one of the parts of that is how do we consciously create intergenerational connections and community if our life circumstances have meant that they are not around us. And that's quite common. And I, it's something I've done with childless women, helping them make friends with each other. And now it's about, well, how do we do that in community, in connection between older women without children? And it's, it's difficult because so much of 
friendship and depth and community is created by proximity. You know, one does need to, in a way, get rooted and then start to populate your environment, find those women like us and find those women who are compatible with women like us who have young people in their lives and how we can connect with them. And something that is very much emerging for me, but I have no idea what this is going to look like. And this is one of the, you know, the things about the transition into into elderhood is there is something on the horizon that I don't know what shape it's going to take yet. But I sense that as as someone who doesn't have children and grandchildren, as someone who doesn't have any biological skin in the game, I'm I care very passionately about the future of all the children in the world. And I'm kind of thinking that maybe becoming a slightly radical old crone, someone who's got some experience in shaking up social systems and organising and making things happen, I just have this vision that maybe we could become the radical allies to much younger people who are facing some very, very big challenges in the world they're inheriting. So there may be a different way to have young people in our life other than the nuclear family silo. That's my hope. I think you're quite right. I mean, that is one of the issues that I deal with throughout Hagitude is how we can be radical, um, how we can, when necessary, in true trickster archetypal mode, shake up and disrupt the system to take mm-hmm. account of us and account of what we have to bring to the world. One of the archetypes that particularly has interested me as someone without children and without children close to me to kind of mentor in a way Mm. is the archetype of the fairy godmother. So actually (laughs) your section, when we were speaking for Hegarty, your section comes in the fairy godmother chapter because it seemed to be particularly relevant. Not all of us can be grandmothers, but any of us can be a fairy godmother. And by fairy godmother, I do not mean the disnified, you know, pretty kind of twinkly, um, taffeta dressed, character fairy godmothers i think can take all kinds of shapes and forms depending on what the particular child needs and so that is very interesting to me the ways in which we as elder women elder women can perhaps have something to say to children who really are not our own but mm-hmm. one of the challenges that we face and that i find i face particularly not really being in in close physical proximity to any children is i have no clue what they do these days you mm-hmm. know my experience of childhood And I was an older cousin to many, many younger cousins. Mm. But all of that experience is back in the 60s. I have Mm -hmm. no idea what it is now. Yeah, and I think that can be a bit of a fear that, uh, that maybe we won't get them or they won't get us. But perhaps children are one thing. Adolescents are extraordinary. Hmm. I I trained as a child and adolescent psychotherapist. I mean, I work with adults as well, but my training was all with young people. And I found that actually I had a bit of a sweet spot for adolescents because they're on a threshold. And I found that as someone like you who is drawn to thresholds, I found it very easy to connect with them. I found that they were able to go quite deep and they're incredibly curious about the world and about their own process and what's happening to them. And it didn't feel that I needed to know all of the pop stars and film stars and things that they were interested in because there was something archetypal that we could connect through that was very powerful. 
So perhaps when you get a chance to spend some time uh, with young people, maybe on the barricades, maybe I'll see you there. (laughs) I think you might find it's easier than you imagine. I'm sure it would be. I mean, there is a part of me at this stage in my life, and of course, all proper, if if you'll forgive me for using the word, life journey systems Mm. are cyclical, not linear, like the good old hero's Mm. journey. They're all cyclical. And at this point in my life, I do feel, feel a kind of circling back to a younger self, and yes, for, for me, certainly adolescence was a remarkably, profoundly transformative period, not just physically and all of the stuff that we go through as women and the hormones and what have you, but intellectually and thinking about who I was and who I might want to be in the world and just soaking up so many ideas. And I do think that there is a this time in our lives, which is post what we used to call the midlife crisis. Now mm. we're supposed to call it the midlife transition, but it is actually beyond midlife. You have kind of a cluster of things at this stage in your life. So at midlife, whatever that is these days, there is a transition period. You have mm. menopause, which for women is a cataclysmic physical transformation. But it doesn't end there. When you come out of elderhood, when you come out of menopause Mm. and you pass into elderhood, there's another kind of, I want to call it a choice point, but it's not a binary choice. You know, there is a question to be answered, several questions to be answered Mm. about who am I now? Who do I want to be? And I think that age old kind of elder woman archetype has many things in common with the archetype of the maiden, which we tend Mm. to, of course, identify with as as adolescents. So, yeah, it it, it does. uh, I absolutely relate to what you're saying. There would be a a recognition there, I think. Mm. I'm really interested by what you said about that choice point. Um, I'm just thinking for me, I'm uh, 58, so a few years younger than you. And at 55, I felt a profound shift. I was excited about turning 50. Um, I was excited to leave my 40s behind because they had been a decade of of loss, of grieving, um, huge identity transformation from becoming someone who had hoped to be a mother to someone who was never going to be a mother. And I thought my 50s, well, you know, I'm back. Here we go. Um, I menopaused, you know, I had my last period at sort of 48, so at 14. So I was very much kind of done. Um, And then at 55, I felt this huge shift because I was no longer someone who had recently been in my 40s. Somehow I was halfway to 60 and I thought in that decade and I thought, okay, that's properly grown up. <laughs> and uh, and I felt like almost like an interior orientation in me shift very powerfully towards the rest of my life being less than I'd already had, not planning to live to 110. But also just my whole orientation going, okay, well, what is that going to look like? And as you said, who do I want to become? And it felt that adolescent feeling because it's like, who do I want to be when I grow up? And now it's like, well, what kind of elder woman do I want to be? And I thought, whoever, who asks those questions? Where can I find my mentors and my guides to this process? And well, you know, whistle. (laughs) <laughs> as as a woman without children, I think it's you, Sharon. Ah, I'm not. I'm not going to step up to that. But <laughs> that was precisely the question that I wanted to look at in Hagitude. And as you know, 
when I ask a question like that, I always go to stories first because mm -hmm. there is always something in the old stories. And what I found when I was looking through European myth and folklore mm -hmm. in the old stories is that the elder women in them were very rarely protagonists, but they almost always, in some profound sense, ran the show sometimes behind the scenes and sometimes more overtly, but there were all mm. of these different ways in which elder women did that. There were different archetypes. And one of the things that I asked or that I'm asking readers of Hagitude is, you know, who is, which of these archetypal old women mm. might reflect your inner hag? So we have the tricksters who disrupt, yes, you know, who, who, who shake up society, who come in and point out all of the ways in which it's going wrong mm -hmm. and do something to, to kind of stop it in its tracks, which is very an, an archetype that's very closely related to the truth teller. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the, the dangerous old woman, the kind of Baba Yaga type of old woman who appear to be hiding in the wood and they don't advertise their wares, but if you want them, you can probably find them, but you mm -hmm. or that you want to find them. And the consequences, we have the fairy godmother, the mentors, we have the wise women, we have the uh, the fates and characters like Mother Holder and the Germanic tradition who are kind of weaving, creating the world. And I'm wondering, and I know it's a little bit difficult, perhaps without reading the book, but maybe mm. that's the beauty of the question now. Are there any of those archetypal old women that appear to really call to you at this stage? Hmm. I think there's a little bit of a few of them in me. I, I think the trickster is there for me. Uh, because also when you said a truth teller, that seems to be very strongly part of my archetype as the way I live my life. I, I think back to what my favourite fairy stories were when I was a little girl. And it was uh, The Emperor's New Clothes. <laughs> I absolutely adored that story. And I, you know, there was the little boy pointing out the truth. And, and I think also the, you know, the mentor and the wise woman, I, I, am, I am finding myself called to want to pass on my knowledge, not in an egotistical way, but in a really generative way. It, it, what what parts of it can be of service to the next generation to help them manifest their world rather than in a really strictly legacy driven sense of wanting myself to go on there's something quite different happening there mm. but a truth teller i'm and i was just smiling when you were talking about the the older women who are not the protagonists in in these old stories i'm i'm writing a novel a big part of it is set in ireland um, and there are uh, there's a lot of mythology in it, you won't be surprised. But there's there's also, I'm realising, there are a lot of older women characters in it. And one of them particularly, she is the behind-the-scenes mover and shaker. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the, the things it seems to me that we have to perhaps get over when we really try to embrace these archetypes who are not the archetypes we've grown up to be supposed to be embracing, like the golden-haired mm. princess, which I don't think I ever actually related to. I always related, even when I was a child, to the yeah. old women, um, particularly the witches in the woods and so on. Mm. But I think 
part of the journey for a number of women that I have spoken to is being able to accept that that younger self, that self that was perhaps a little bit more focused for all of us in some way, no matter how small on image, on, you know, cultural expectations of beauty and so on, and to embrace this concept of the hag, which doesn't have to be ugly, mm. but has to be in some way authentically and fiercely herself. And that is kind of what hag means to me. It's someone who has just stopped giving the proverbial about anything that really doesn't matter to the world, to our own individual kind of authentic calling. That's what the word means to me. What, what do you think or what do you feel when you hear the word hag? I think this, it, it has two faces to me. There's a part of me that's excited and a part of me that's scared. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's used as an insult in our culture, even though it really, you know, has many, many etymological meanings. I'm sure you unpack in your book, but it's, you know, it's you old hag, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to be a shaming thing. And when you were saying in some way, you know, we, we, we have let go of our, our younger selves and our younger bodies under a male gaze, it doesn't really matter under patriarchy if you are good looking in inverted commas older woman or not just to be in an aging female body in our culture is to be shamed you know is to be invisible so I think it's incredibly challenging to to move into that to let go of those layers um, and I think hag for me speaks of being at peace with the externals mel mel melting away and changing all the time because for me certainly you know i'm at the beginning i call myself an apprentice crone um thanks to marion um, van eyck it's a it's a sense of turning inwards of of the riches being within rather than the beauty being without um i by the standards of sort of you know western culture of my time I was a kind of an eye-turning woman when I was a young woman. And actually that caused me a lot of problems in my life. As I moved through my 40s and the, and the male gaze started to shift away from me, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually felt like I, I had an invisibility cloak, you know, magic. I finally had some magic around it. And then gradually having to accept that that, that cloak is now with me permanently um, and that I can... Uh, Becoming a hag means I can start to slip through the gaps. I can start to maybe be that trickster. It's like a bit like Miss Marple. No one's really expecting anything from me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I'm going to be able to kind of slip through the weave and stir up trouble and bring truth to light. And maybe, you know, maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe what. That's the thing. I don't know what. But I know there's so much magic to come as I turn inwards and I meet my hag. Mm. It, it, that is an interesting discussion, that whole issue of invisibility. Mm. And it is amazing how many women writers, as well as people that I've spoken to, are relieved by that loss of what the culture thinks of as physical beauty and attractiveness. Mm -hmm. And Doris Lessing, for example, one of my favorite writers who appears quite often in the pages of Haggitude wrote a lot about the freedom that came with invisibility as she got older 
And I feel that very much too, that that is an intrinsic part of the, the liminality of being an elder woman, because being an elder woman is liminal in itself. Mm -hmm. You're on the threshold between kind of, if you like, the fullness of life and the inevitable end of the journey, which is death. And no matter how many decades I think you spend between menopause and your eventual death, mm -hmm. I think they are all in some sense liminal decades because it is very, very much more real. But I think for me, like you, there was a relief not to be the focus of attention. And yet I found myself for a long time not missing it, but just kind of thinking, okay, there is a there is a readjustment in how you present exactly. yourself to the world, isn't there? And, yeah. you know, for me, a lot of it for me came very, very suddenly because when I was diagnosed with lymphoma back in 2021, would have been about uh, 18 months ago, and went through a chemotherapy that involved me losing my hair, it growing back completely wild compared to what it was, having a treatment based on steroids that meant I put on a little bit of extra weight compared to what I had been. So it, it kind of happened for me all in one go. And that was that was probably a more radical adjustment than most people are asked to adjust to. And I think I'm still feeling my way through it. Mm -hmm. I mostly like it. But what it does is it reminds me also, which is probably a good thing, it brings into very, very sharp relief that sense that, okay, there are only perhaps so many really good years left, you know, yeah. where yeah. you're physically strong mm -hmm. and able to communicate, to be out there. And what it's part of this discussion we've just been having about, you know, what do I want to be in those years? Mm. What is the actual focus? What is that authentic self that needs to come through? Totally. And that sense of having that focus moving towards, you know, the next destination is the final destination. It, it brings discernment. Mm. And I think I'm much clearer now about what I don't want to do, mm -hmm. what I not going to waste my time doing and my mum is had me very young when she was 18 so she's still only 18 years older than me but she's deep in dementia and that's really happened sort of um, over the last couple of years um, and she's now in a nursing home and there's this sense for me that as I'm growing older I'm and this is something that is I've written about it on Instagram in places and people have really responded to it. I can see my mother in the mirror. You know, I, I'm, my face is more and more like my mother's. And, and that, is, that is quite challenging. That is almost like an opportunity to have a new relationship with her through my own face. Um, even though the relationship with her in person is, is, is getting much harder. Um, and many things that I've hoped would perhaps be resolved before the end of her life are never going to be resolved there are conversations we're never going to be able to have and I think that that sense of I might only have 10 intellectual years left if I if I if my if I get dementia at the same age as my mum you know I've got I've got shit to do <laughs> I've got books to write I don't have time to pretend anything anymore exactly mm. Yes, I think that is probably the greatest gift of menopause, isn't it? And, and I have always spoken of it since I went through it myself as very much a kind of alchemical process in which 
everything that you do not require is stripped away from you. Mm -hmm. In the crucible, you go, if you look at the processes, the stages of alchemy, that's the good old alchemist used to to write about and to, well, not very much, unfortunately, but but mm-hmm. to the extent that they did, that idea of the calcination absolutely back to the bone is absolutely, for me, the essence of menopause. And one of the things that I find sad, really, about the culture is that we're not taught that that is what it is supposed to do. You know, mm-hmm. menopause is still very much about trying to hold on to everything as long as you possibly can. And even though there's much more of a cultural discourse now about menopause over the past couple of years, it still all seems to me to be focused in this idea of just clinging on, clinging on, don't let it go. And the point of it is, it is supposed to go. This is what that physical transformation is supposed to to enable in us psychologically that stripping away of everything Mm -hmm. and I think it does create an urgency not a not for me anyway not the kind of urgency that makes me want to go mad and be out there kind of doing this and doing that because time is short but but actually just to learn above all when to say no to things that that just aren't part of that really focused stuff that I've got to do now in whatever years might be left Mm. yes um I agree that a lot of the discourses around extending mid, a very functional, good-looking middle age, that's the sort of seems to be the goal, rather than transitioning into, into young elderhood and then elderhood, becoming an elder woman. And I've been talking about this for years. It was like even when I was middle-aged and I would say I was middle-aged, people say, but you look young for your age. You know, I've always looked young for my age. And you can't call yourself middle-aged. And this would be like when I was about 45. I said, well... At what point am I middle-aged if it's not 45? You know, hope, you know, if I live to 90, this is my middle age. Mm. And then when I started talking about, you know, um, getting older, you know, embracing the archetypes and the witch and the hag and using the word crone in a positive way, and people say, you can't use that word. And I was like, why not? It, this, is, this is what I am becoming. You know, once again, I'm I'm shedding another layer of skin. I'm shedding another identity. You know, I've shedded the maiden. I've shedded the mother years. I mean, for me, they ended, you know, did not involve having children. But I, I did do an extraordinary amount of creative and generative work and actually take care of literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people around the world through, you know, through my work and my workshops and my book and my online communities. And now there's a sense of, letting that be and passing that on and moving into the next thing and I'm I'm excited and there's part of me I think because I've been through the intense profound calcinato grief of letting go of motherhood and all of the identity that that involved for me I kind of I think I've been preparing to be a crone for quite some time and many of the skills that I, I read about in books about sort of, you know, aging, which are about letting go. It's like, I've kind of got these. doesn't mean they're easy, but, you know, losing your community, the friendship apocalypse of childlessness, being different to your peers, not fitting into the cultural mainstream narrative of what a woman is meant to be like. It's like, I've done this. So there's a part of me that feels ripe and ready for old age. But then recently I had a, a, a big experience where I, I talked earlier about, you know, letting go and passing on a huge part of, of my work to the next generation. And in it, I experienced not 
not immediately the time, but once the logistics of it had all been dealt with, I hit a profound patch of grief because actually I was letting go of a big part of my midlife identity, having been the founder of this profound thing that had changed so many lives. And I was letting go of it. And I, I, I write about grief. I've been, you know, it's like almost like my specialist subject, but I sort of had forgotten quite how profoundly painful it, to the ego identity change is, because even if it's change you want, it involves loss. You've got to let go of what is in order to move into what is becoming. And that transition can only ever be accomplished by grief. That is its job to get us from what was to what will be. Indeed. I I don't think that any profound transformation is possible without grief Uh, of some kind. Yes. Of some kind for, for something. Yeah. One of the things that I am interested in, I suppose... A little differently, perhaps, as a woman who mostly chose mm. childlessness, is that and and who had a very very difficult relationship with her mother, which undoubtedly have a, had a little something to do mm. with that. But it wasn't as simple as that. I always believed that if I had children, I would subsume myself into them and I would lose any gift to the world that I had, mm-hmm. because that's just you know some strange part of my nature. And I was always quite relieved that in the end, the choices, the times when I would have made the choice to have children, it was not a choice that was available to me. Mm. For me, then, that whole archetype of mother is something that I've struggled with throughout my life, not because I wanted to be it and hadn't been able to, but because I really had to think very long and hard about what that meant to me as a stage of a woman's life Uh, The maiden mother crone business is actually an invention. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are no goddess clusters, maiden mother crone in in old mythology. It was actually invented by Robert Graves, author of White Goddess, Mm -hmm. for one of his many sins. But nevertheless, even though it didn't exist in old mythology, it is something that we can see as relevant to, you know, to most women's everyday lives. But if you are never the mother, what are you? And then what are you when you grow out of that stage? And one of the things that has always seemed to me, and perhaps it's true also for women who are involuntarily childless is, and again, this is something that I write a little bit about in Haggitude and will be taking up in considerable more detail in my next book, is as someone who has never been a mother, I felt in a sense that I was kind of trapped in the role of daughter, Mm -hmm. not just with my own mother, you know, that I never had the, I never had the clout, I never had the gravitas mm-hmm. that came from having children of your own. But also in, in wider society, it's as though you feel that you have never quite grown up. And so when you go into menopause in that kind of condition, it's it's kind of a double whammy of, of complexity, you know, Yes. because you don't even have the motherhood to give up. You've never been that archetype, even though clearly the archetype of mother is very much more complex than just giving physical birth mm-hmm. to a human child. But I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Oh, gosh, yes. A whole book of thoughts on that, probably. Yes. Um, well, it's interesting because I, I, I had had and have a very complex relationship with my own mother. She was an unmothered child and I was an unmothered child. And 
in many ways, my in my early 20s, certainly from my teenage years onwards, I didn't think I wanted to have children because I was terrified of repeating the pattern. I didn't understand. I had no psychological awareness in my 20s. You know, that came much later. Um, that actually the fact that I was already aware that I didn't want to repeat the pattern was probably a pretty good sign that I would I would do things differently. And I think... I that that process that growing up process within the family that I've seen in friends because I I don't have siblings either and I've seen in friends how their relationships with their mothers have changed when they both sort of move onto the same team they are both mothers there is a graduation process mm. that um, when you don't have children within your your family of origin you don't get and actually if you do have siblings and your siblings have children you remain a child in the eyes of the family yeah. You will be left out of all kinds of important conversations and decisions mm -hmm. about the family because you're sort of still seen as a child compared to your siblings with children. You know, and this is pronatalism at work. It's very unconscious. It's intensely painful. You know, when a single childless or child free woman might go home to her family at Christmas, they might ask her to sleep on the sofa or in a tent in the garden so that her siblings' children can have a bed. You know, she's literally demoted in such a way and yet if she were to complain about it she's told she's being sensitive you know so there is there is a very much a, a social piece at work there through pronatalism which devalues those who don't particularly women who don't have children as kind of not really fully qualified adults i mean you only have to see the social trope of you know as a mother as a phrase before just about anything doesn't have to have anything to do with parenting is a kind of lean in phrase it immediately gives gravitas and maturity to whatever comes after it regardless of what it's about no one's no one you know as a childless woman no one's going to lean in and listen they're going to be like oh what's she on about what's she bringing that up you know it's so there's there is a lot of at work and i think if you are a mother and perhaps if you have daughters and you move into the menopause there is a lot of complexity around that um, and that's covered usually in pretty well much every book about aging and the menopause, <laughs> you know, whereas moving into your own autumn without a daughter to move into her spring, which is what I've seen, seen written before, it has a loneliness about it because there is a sense that you are moving towards the end of your line. I sometimes describe the menopause for, for childless women as a death you survive because it's it's the end of your line and people don't often give space or acknowledgement to how profound that might be and and the depth they might need to allow themselves to feel that yes it is interesting so i again i have no brothers or sisters so i am absolutely and very profoundly the end of my line mm. and neither of my parents had other children um even after they divorced and so I don't feel necessarily a grief at that, because again, it is something that I mostly chose, but I do feel a sense of responsibility that that line then has to count for something mm. that I, I, I can't just let it fizzle. And I don't mean that in some sense of, you know, clutching on to something desperate that I must do for other people. It's just that sense of, okay, if you don't pass on children to the world, you have almost a, a greater sense of obligation, I think, quite often 
to be something yourself, to, to leave something else that is a legacy, so that that part of your ancestral lineage has not just fizzled out. And I do think that there is a very, very profound role for those of us who are the ends of our line in that mm -hmm. way, if we can if we can think in this way, and of course, again, society, culture does not encourage us to think in this way about our calling, about why we're here. And no, it, it encourages us to see, you know, being the end of the line as some kind of failure. Failure, and, indeed. And I certainly, you know, had that feeling for some time. And I, I had it really transformed a few years ago. I went to uh, a, a work that reconnects workshop um, based on um, Joanna Macy's work about reconnecting to the grief of the earth. And there was this exercise in the workshop where we we were all women and we were in an octagonal room and we had to sort of walk backwards around this almost circular room whilst the facilitator was slowly beating a drum and she was reading out this script. And we had to imagine ourselves in our mother's womb and then we had to imagine our grandparents. And as we were walking backwards around the room with our eyes sort of almost closed, she was taking us back into deep time, remembering right back to our first ancestor. And um, and then we got to, and as we were going back, I was had this feeling of dread, you know, <laughs> uh, of all of these, these people that I had failed. And then we reversed and we walked forwards through time and we had the same script, but it was coming up to the present day. And I started to feel, and I've got goosebumps all over now because it was so profound for me. I started to feel them all gathering at my back. And as I moved up towards the present day, I felt all of them behind me, all of them cheering me on. And I realized that actually I had a sense that they had chosen me. They had prepared me to be their representative in this time. And they were thrilled for me. You know, there was no sense of that all of the sacrifices and joys and heartbreaks that they'd been through stopped with me and that was a failure. It's just like, you go girl, we've got your back. And yeah. transformed my understanding and made me, made me realize that my life is precious too. That I wasn't just here to be a reproductive vessel. You know, there are other ways and I think that's the day when I realized I may be childless, but I can still be a good ancestor. You know, it's, it, and that feels really important to me to, like you said, with legacy, it's like, well, what can I do? How yeah. can I be of service? And what's very interesting to me in that respect, and that's a, that's a lovely story, and I've had a, a similar kind of experience, is that when we look back at the old European myths and folktales, the elder women are almost always without family. Mm. They don't generally have husbands. They don't generally have a crowd of children. They tend to be these edge-walking, liminal characters who, and some of them may have families and children. Mm -hmm. We don't know, because that is not the point of the story. The point is, who are they? But most mm -hmm. of them are alone. And I take some... Well, not comfort in that because I I don't generally, to be honest, have much of a trauma about being childless. But I take some sense of meaning in that condition for any of us, including for women who find that a great grief in their lives, that these archetypal old women who were pulling the strings 
not in a way of gaining power, but because they had the insight and the knowledge, they didn't do that because they had been mothers and because they had mm. given birth in that classical way. And again, it makes me feel that in a sense, if you haven't had children and you haven't gone through that traditional that traditional way of inhabiting the mother archetype, you are very, very much more prepared perhaps for most facets of the hag, of the older woman, simply because it opens up so many opportunities where you're not bound by a family. Yeah, I mean, I would not be having the life I am having. I would not be talking to you now if I'd had children because that's where my focus would have been. I would have probably thrown myself into motherhood uh, much the way you, you feared uh, you would, mm -hmm. and it would have been my identity. And I'm, you know, much as I grieved that identity, I also have great joy in my identity as a woman without children and what it's been possible for me to discover about myself and how I can offer myself differently to myself and to the world. I feel we talked earlier about, you know, adolescence and menopause. In many ways, menopause for me brought back many of the qualities I remember of myself before adolescence, mm. you know, of me at sort of, you know, 10, 11, 12, strong, fierceless, brave, challenging, you know, with an intellect that was looking at the way the world was set up and the way the world worked and went, hang on a minute, this isn't right. I'm um, wondering what I could do about it, you know, um, you know, looking at boys and just seeing them as people who, you know, you could have a tree climbing competition with. <laughs> and I, I love that fierceness, you know, and that mental clarity. And I do feel I've got a lot of back, that back postmenopause and also the, uh, the IDGAF energy of postmenopause, which uh, you can edit it out, but it's the I don't give a fuck. Right. <laughs> No, I certainly will not edit any fucks out uh, of any of these sessions. And I quite agree with you. Clarity was the overwhelming sense for me of what on earth have all of these hormones been doing to my brain? Oh, Lord. Yes. Thank heavens they're gone. That was very wonderful. Finally, uh, final, final question before we wrap up this lovely conversation. The inevitable end of this elderhood journey is death. How do you feel about that? I can't say I'm looking forward to it, but I'm not dreading it either. I think the the journey, the, the death of my identity that was part of grieving my motherhood sort of brought me close to, to thinking about that as the next stage. And I remember when I was feeling that I had nothing to pass on to the next generation, you know, that, that I would just disappear. You know, I, I started to think that I, I would sit in English country churchyards and walk around and look at every single gravestone that would say, you know, mother, grandmother, beloved sister, beloved wife. I was single and childless during that period. And see that every everything was about this web of relationships and I felt completely cast out from them. But fast forward a, through year, a few years and through the gifts of grief and the work of kind of letting go of that identity, I thought, actually, when I'm gone, I will be part of a much bigger cycle. I'm not going to be part of the cycle of birth, human birth and death, but I'm still part of the bigger cycles of returning to this beautiful earth 
and turning into mulch and becoming, you know, becoming food for trees and plants again. And my consciousness, whatever that is, will just scatter um, to the four winds and maybe it will coalesce somewhere else. And so then I went to thinking, actually, when I die, I would like to be buried in a in an eco coffin in a bluebell wood. I have found one. I want no headstone. I want to disappear. And that to me has given me a great sense of peace that my legacy and what people think of me, all of those things are irrelevant. I'll just do what I can while I'm here. And when I'm gone, I'm gone. And it also have to say it does help that I now I got married again earlier this year um, to my partner of six years. And we live, we share a home with his 92 year old mum. And being around elderhood is also such a gift because it really brings home what it's like, what's coming, what the gifts are, what the challenges are. And I think we've really lost something, so many of us, by losing the habit of intergenerational living, both missing our elders and missing our youngers. And that can make it so hard for women like us. Um, but it's been a real gift to have that in my life. Lovely. Yes, I can imagine it would be. Mm. And that's a perfect place, I think, on which to, which to end. So thank you so much for the conversation. It was very rich, as always, and I really appreciate it. Where can people find you? Thank you, Sharon. Um, you can find everything on Gateway Women website, so gateway-women.com. You can find links there to my Instagram. And the one probably you might want to look at is called at Apprentice Crone, which is where I'm really focusing on my work about how to become a conscious, childless elder woman. I don't have the answer to that yet, but I will report back as I find out. That sounds brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Sharon. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Mythic Life in a series centred on Hagitude. And if you'd like to find out more about Hagitude, the book and the membership programme, please visit hagitude.org. <laughs>